Read Smart, the Bailey Gifford Prize for Nonfiction podcast. This podcast is generously supported by the Blavatnik Family Foundation. Hello and welcome to this month's episode of Read Smart, the official Bailey Gifford Prize for Nonfiction podcast with me, Shahid Abari. I'm a critic, academic and presenter. You might have seen me on BBC Two as the host of the topical arts programme Inside Culture or heard me on BBC Radio 3 as one of the presenters of Free Thinking. I've also previously been a Bailey Gifford judge, although this year I'm helping to judge the Booker Prize instead. Most importantly, I'm your host for the Read Smart podcast, while our friend Razia Iqbal is away at Princeton for the next few months. She sends you her regards from Chile, New Jersey. Meanwhile, here at Read Smart today, we'll be offering up our predictions for the publishing trends in nonfiction coming up this year. And later in the podcast, Bailey Gifford Prize director, our very own Toby Mundy, will be speaking with Reeves Wiedemann features writer at New York Magazine about the elusive book thief. Yes, I know, intriguing. Find out more in a bit. Just in case you're new to the podcast, let me remind you that the Bailey Gifford Prize has been recognising the very best of non-fiction writing for 24 years now, celebrating books that span across the arts, history, current affairs, politics, science, sport, travel, biography and autobiography. And the Read Smart podcast is our effort at thinking more broadly about books and the publishing industry, as well as providing a behind-the-scenes view of this year's prize as we head into announcing the longlist, shortlist and the winner later this year. As always, we're immensely grateful to the Blavatnik Family Foundation for its generous sponsorship of the podcast. So today we're trend spotting in the world of nonfiction publishing, which kinds of books are in vogue and which are falling out of fashion, what are the reading public hungry to consume, and as we emerge uncertainly from the pandemic, is nonfiction publishing in good health? Let's ask our guests who are on the line now. They are Matthew Hennessy, the nonfiction buyer at Waterstones, and Alexis Kirschbaum, publishing director for fiction and nonfiction at Bloomsbury. Hello, Matthew and Alexis. Hello. Hello. Thanks so much for joining us today. Let's start with that last question I just trailed there. Fingers crossed, we, we do seem to be emerging from the COVID-19 pandemic. It's been the weirdest two years ever. But can we take stock at the start of 2022? Is it literally, can we take stock? Is it possible to say whether nonfiction publishing is in a healthy state right now? Matthew, what's your, your view from the bookshop floor? Well, there's certainly no shortage of interesting proofs and finished copies sort of landing on the doorstep. Um, I, I think there was perhaps a, a slight logjam caused by the pandemic and a number of pub dates being pushed back, the uncertainty around whether or not bookshops would be open. Um, and I think inevitably a few books which ordinarily would have had a chance to really shine perhaps got slightly lost in, in the crush. Um but broadly, I would say that's that's settled down now, and we've got what looks like a slightly more balanced publishing schedule in nonfiction. Um, within that, I think there are always sort of subgenres that are in the ascendancy and other areas which seem to perhaps be um, uh, not quite so um, robust as as previously. But taking nonfiction and indeed sort of publishing as a whole, I would say that there's, as I say, no shortage of interesting books, sort of popping up across all sorts of genres. And and one of the sort of thrills when you first kind of uh, see the publisher's catalogue for the coming year or start to talk about what's coming out in the next two to three months is those books which 
you had no idea you were interested in and and on subjects that were n- never even on your radar and and already there are sort of three or four of those I would say that have kind of piqued my interest. Great. Uh, it, does it sound like it's there's, it's going to be quite a crowded bookshelf? Are, are we going to be elbowing for room books at the moment? There's never any shortage of publishing, and I think one of the challenges we always have is trying to do justice to as many of the books as possible without sort of overcrowding the shelves. A lot of the a lot of our shops are relatively small, certainly compared to obviously the like infinite space of the internet, where that's not really a concern. Um, so that we, we never struggle to fill the shelves. It's just trying to make sure that we put the right ones front and centre. Yeah. Alexis, let me ask you, what's the view from the publishing house? Is, is non-fiction publishing in a healthy state? Yes, um, absolutely. It's, it's very healthy. Um, and I think there are certain reasons for that. Um, from my point of view, I think a lot of... Uh, What's happened over the past two years is people have obviously been sort of much more on their own and looking at social media and not trusting social media necessarily. And two things have happened as a consequence of that, I think, which is that um, because of the misinformation out there, people want expertise from books, I think. Um, And then, of course, after sort of the Harvey Weinstein scandal and Black Lives Matter, Mm -hmm. um, all of which happened in the last couple of years, five years. Um, I I think a lot of people thought we might move on and forget, but um, I think gender and race are sort of mainstream subjects now. Um, And you can see it across fiction and nonfiction. Um, And I think it's because it's sort of our new reality and, you know, sometimes it's debatable and heated territory. Um, but the debate itself around these questions, I think, is here to stay. Um, at plus, the, the world debate is sh- shifting quite radically and quickly. Mm. So I think you need to know where you stand on various issues as well. So, yeah, so is- issues before that were important before the pandemic and, and not about the pandemic are continuing to be important. I, I do wonder if, if you either of you have been surprised by any of the publishing trends and phenomena that have come about in this pandemic? Obviously, I'm particularly interested in, in nonfiction. Has anything surprised you, Alexis? Um, surprised me. That's such a good question. I mean, everybody, every publisher always has surprises. Um, we've seen, I know you're asking about nonfiction, but we've seen a huge surprises because of TikTok. It's actually ridiculous. And uh-huh. it's um and that is across actually fiction and nonfiction. I think Julie Smith, who's number one this week, is a huge TikTok person. Um and that that platform is really really um connected to books. Um our own why I'm no longer talking to white people about race um was a huge, huge bestseller. Um, during Black Lives Matter, um, but we didn't know that would happen. Um, yeah, so there are a lot of happy um, trends as well, I think. Yeah, J- Julie Smith, we should say, the, the psychologist who's been writing about about psychology and, and mindfulness, I think. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. yeah. And she's, she's, she makes it look really look normal and sort of fun. And, you know, I think that there's... There's not that sense anymore that self-help is tacky. 
Um, and I think that's partly because self-help has beco- become so much better, um, partly because certain celebrities who aren't tacky do it, mm-hmm. and partly because it's just what people want to read right now. So um, publishers who might have thought it was tacky a few years ago really can't afford to think that way anymore. Yeah. You have really um, you know, sort of top-notch literary imprints like Alan Lane publishing Why We Sleep and, you know, they're doing really well with that. And I would definitely call that self-help adjacent, Um, not to mention Jordan Peterson, who's their biggest seller ever. Um, And even on my own list, I I actually just learned that I've got two books on the Sunday Times bestseller list this week with uh, Wendy Mitchell, who sort of wrote a self-help book for people with dementia um, and Stolen Focus, which is about, amongst other things, how technology has um, made it more difficult for us to focus these days. I wanted to talk a little bit more about the self-help genre in a moment, but let me ask you, Matthew, if you've been surprised by by what's done well or, or, or the particular phenomena of the pandemic from Matt Waterston's bookshop floor. Well, in a, in a sense, at the very beginning of the pandemic, everything that happened was a surprise. We were in completely uncharted territory and almost day by day, things would alter quite radically in terms of what we were selling and, and what we were able to sell. Obviously, once we were shut, it kind of limited the overall range we were able to supply to customers online, at least initially. Um, and I, I suppose once it, it settled down, you had a lot of things that in retrospect seemed quite um, unsurprising in terms of people wanting to pick up a new hobby, learn a new skill. So the books, the very basic reference books across cookery, um, what you would broadly call self-help as well, I suppose, did see a huge spike in sales. Um, thereafter, it, it, it's it's harder to say because, as I say, we were new publishing was so affected by the fact that the bookshops were closed and so mm. much was pushed back that we we saw, I would say, a a significant increase in in the backlist sales right across the board in terms mm. of as well as um i know we're talking specifically about non-fiction but even within fiction just the the sales of classics novels you'd always wanted to read yes people finally picking them up and deciding actually if i don't read middle march now then i'm never going <laughs> to read it so um so as i say in a sense everything was surprising and it was just we were i suppose grateful as well that we had we had the um, the website to kind of keep us afloat, um, but as as the publishing is settling down now, and I think actually sort of two years on, that's perhaps just about a long enough amount of time to see books emerging now, which reflect in one way or another, either directly or indirectly, about the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, and for me, what's been apparent just in let's say just getting to know what's coming out this year and sort of trying to put piece together what it's going to look like is there's an awful lot of untraditional biography I would say so rather than a a celebrity biography or even like an artist or writer's biography which you might ordinarily associate with those sections we're seeing lots of memoirs from people just about general experiences so Amy Lipchop for example um, has a book out next month I believe called The Instant about moving from Orkney to Berlin Um, there is another one um, from Clover Stroud The Red of My Blood which again is similar in terms of it's in some sense, a memoir, but it's also about dealing with loss and, and dealing with grief as well. So there's certainly an awful lot of books that would broadly fall under that genre or subgenre, mm-hmm. but I would say, um, which I'm not sure if it's surprising or not, but it's certainly becoming more noticeable. Yeah. 
I, I just want to pick up on the self-help conversation that Alexa started because it, 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 I think it makes perfect sense that in a pandemic where people might feel vulnerable um, and, and in a strange moment, they might turn to self-care. Um, but I, I'm wondering whether we're, we're seeing this genre evolve. Alexis, you mentioned Julie Smith and Jordan Peterson. Uh, has the genre changed in recent years and is it changing? I think it. I think it is because part partly what happens is once a genre becomes successful, it attracts sort of bigger people to it. If if that makes any sense, so you you are getting um, sort of famous people like Fern Cotton doing um, self help, and that makes it um, that reaches a, a, a very big, very broad market, um, and then. Philippa Perry's book last year was such a massive success and she was and is obviously an, an expert, but she's writing about something that everyone understands, which is, you know, what it's like to be a parent and what it's like to be parented and what you would have wished for your own parents to be like um, as a parent to you and how that might influence the way you parent. Um, and it was just such a I thought it was such an exquisite publication because it was almost done in a literary way. You know, it, the, the, the type on the cover was adjusted to the left. Um, it just, you know, nothing about it said tacky self-help mm. um, or I'm reading this to further my career. It's sort of, I'm reading this to be a better person. And I think that shift is so much more palatable um, and attractive. Um yeah. Yeah. And and I, I would say there's been a kind of shift to the intellectual in self-care as well. I mean, we could talk about brain care as well as self-care, the so-called smart book genre, um, exemplified by writers like Malcolm Gladwell and Noah Yuval Hariri. What 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 accounts for the rise of those those clever books, Matthew? What do you think? It's difficult to say. I I, I suppose just more broadly, the one of the challenges we have when we're thinking about the layout of our shop and what people are looking for within non-fiction where you've got this sort of intersection of of self-help and and smart books and books about popular science or books that are broadly under the umbrella of of politics or or social sciences is to a certain extent some of those classifications begin to feel a bit arbitrary because there is so much crossover in terms of as as Alexis said a moment ago the way those books are published now in terms of self-help versus smart is often indistinguishable and, and mm. done deliberately because there's no reason that someone who read and enjoyed a book by Malcolm Gladwell wouldn't also enjoy a book by Daniel Kahneman or, or Susan Cain or, or Renny Yellow Lodge or, or whatever it might be. There's there's a sense, certainly from customers, that they're, they're not particularly um, searching for a, a section so much as just books about these sort of very specific issues or these subjects, whether that's their own mental health or it's trying to educate themselves slightly about some of the issues that are, are most pressing so I, I think a lot of it is external in terms of so many of these uh, these problems or these issues that are now at the forefront of, of society people do want to educate themselves and therefore it's it's not unsurprising that you have a lot of books that talk about the role of technology or mm. what we can do in a practical sense uh, to to combat climate crisis and and I think that's as well something as that I've certainly found in some of those books I've read whereby 
an element of the book might be quite uh, scientific. So the Matthew Walker, where we sleep, for example, does go into quite a lot of detail about how we sleep and the effect of it. But there's also a practical element to it in terms of you want to learn more about how this works because it's important to you and, and your well-being. So I think the combination of the two mm. is something that perhaps makes it harder to try and draw any huge conclusions, certainly um, from my perspective about self-help or smart books because there's, they're, they're indistinguishable in, mm. in some senses. Yeah. I, I totally agree with that. Um, I think it came about because of, I mean, it, it's sort of been a long time coming um, and sort of thinking fast and slow. Um, I, I, have, I originally published that, I can't believe it, like over a decade ago. It just sounds, it seems insane. Um, <laughs> and, you know, thinking fast and slow and sort of Michael Lewis and the financial crisis, uh, these subjects have sort of, they seem very old to me now, actually. Um, but in terms of, like, I think the lockdown really did make people um, depressed and it made them feel that they needed help. Um, and I think a lot of that self-care, that desire for self-care really grew during that period. Mm. It had definitely started before, but it certainly seemed less silly mm. uh, when people were really suffering and needed help, I think. Yeah, all, all sorts of help. Alexis, I'm going to admit to you that I did a Joe Wicks workout during the pandemic, probably just yeah. one. But I also bought Joe Wicks's book. And I want to ask you about how people like Joe Wicks and about new media influencers. You, you've already mentioned Julie Smith's TED Talk um, and Fern Cotton's self-help book. But how are these new media modes of marketing like TED Talks and Instagram um, and, and, and the influencers involved shaping the publishing market? I, I, I wonder... If if this is an, a, a new phenomena and if it's going to become a bigger and bigger part of publishing, what do you think? I think there's like, there's two parts to it. Um, I think it's going to become bigger and bigger. Um, uh, you know, you sort of, you, so you get some authors like for instance, Jor Jordan Peterson and Julie Smith from different platforms um, like podcasts or TikTok. And then you have the, and then you have the, um, marketing from those platforms. Um, I think we've been doing both for a while, but they've really, really broken out. Mm. Um, again, as the kind of, um, the kind of embarrassment around those, um, platforms, especially during lockdown when it, that's all we had as a way of communication, all of that kind of fell away. Um, and people really discovered, um, different kinds of people that they, they wanted to know more from, and it made a huge impact on book publishing and how we market. Matthew, yeah, I think it, yeah, it's undeniable that the sort of the, the traditional um, sort of uh, methods of getting books into people's sort of consciousness through newspaper reviews and and radio and so on is is, is still valuable. But it, uh, the the sort of newer media and social media side of things, as well as the the influence of it, is. Is undeniable. I, I feel completely out of my depth talking about TikTok <laughs> specifically, <laughs> but but just in terms of the the, the the footfall, the traffic it brings into the shops, and also the demographic of the people coming into your shops, it's is exciting because there's all sorts of other opportunities and in, in terms of what else these people might be looking for that once they're in the bookshop, we can provide. So it's 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 an opportunity, but at the minute there's a, a sense of still sort of trying to work out how we can best sort of capitalize on, on, on this phenomenon, really. I, I certainly felt as a publisher, 
um, everyone across publishing realized when Waterstones was closed how much we rely on them. Um, I, I think that was an important moment for a lot of publishers. And I, I just think Waterstones just gets better and better. Um, so you might like to know that, Matthew. Yeah, yeah please, please continue. Please continue. Do you have a TikTok account? I'm assuming you don't run it, Matthew. Um, if I, you, uh, yeah, no, I don't, I don't have a personal one. Um, but, um, and I'm not going anywhere near running our one either, I'm afraid. Well, so. I feel like you about TikTok, that it is a kind of technological advancement one step too far for me. Um, but we've, we've been talking about the new kids on the block, Instagram influencers um, and, and TikTok. But what about the perennials, the, the mainstay subjects in nonfiction publishing? Um, things like the world wars and, and royalty. How how are those standing up as categories, Matthew? Well, within royalty, there's there's obviously quite a lot of publishing on the horizon for the, the Queen's Jubilee. Um, so that's something that already that some of those books that are being published to coincide with that in the summer are already starting to appear on the horizon. Um, within history, it, it, it's interesting because there there are still every year sort of those kind of blockbuster six seven hundred page histories about World War Two or the Russian Revolution. Um, published um but it's again there's sort of on similar theme with with sort of smart thinking and um self-help often sort of the line is blurred between sort of a, a straight history and and a memoir or a, a sort of a travel narrative there's the sense of genre blurring a little bit um that said i think um, certainly within the, the the history genre there's uh i would say one sort of um subjects where there just seems to be a, a, a number of books and a sort of renewed amount of interest is, is empire and, and, and the legacy of empire. And I think Seth and uh, Sangera's empire land was such a huge success. And already, I think there are um, two or three sort of major books that kind of confront the subject in a slightly different way, which are, which are published in the early part of this year as well. So, and, and that, in, in some senses, those books as well, they do cover the sort of historical legacy of empire, but they also, I think certainly some of these books that have been previously published seek to kind of speak to the, the present moment a little bit in a way, if that's not too cheesy a way of putting it. Mm. Um, so it, it's a way of, I, I would say, like the evolution of some history publishing. Not, of course, there will always be, the, as, I, as I said, the sort of grandstanding World War II histories and, and so on. But there's also an element to which that area, very traditional, as you say, um, area of, of publishing is sort of responding to, to changes in people's tastes and, and what people are interested in reading. Alexis? Yes, I, to I totally agree with that. Um, it's almost, uh, there's a much bigger interest, I think, in re revisionist history. I don't know if you want to call it that, but that's sort of what I call it when I'm talking in-house at, <laughs> at Bloomsbury and use, you know, Empire Land you mentioned and, and David Alusoga and even, you know, the five, I know that was a couple of years ago, but that was sort of a... Hallie Rubenhold, yeah. Exactly. And that was a retelling history from overlooked perspectives. And I think that will definitely continue to be a trend. Our listeners are our betting people. I want to find out from the two of you what your tips are for the, the categories of nonfiction um, that you think, the, the, the categories and the fields of nonfiction that you think will do well this year and the, the, the fields that you think might do less well. Matthew, you go first. That's such a hard question. <laughs> um, I, I, it's hard to say, really. I don't know, kind of like dodge the question ever so slightly just because I, I I do feel that certainly when you're within the sort of day-to-day -day of trying to work out what 
customers are interested in. You, you, you don't necessarily looking at genres um, so individually, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. You, you just you're more you're just interested in whether or not this this book looks good. This looks like something I want to read, and this is something we want to put in front of our of our customers. So it's 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 completely dodging the question but um <laughs> very skillfully I, it, it, I, other than i suppose just the, the the some of the topics we've already kind of uh, discussed in the conversation i think there will still continue to be an awful lot of interest in politics and political issues there still will be a lot of books about self-care and, and, and wellness that are published how well they do it it's it's difficult to second guess what's going to happen even in the medium term what people are going to continue to be interested in particularly if the pandemic does start to sort of uh, abate and, and people's lives go back to some version of normality. And Alexis? I agree. It's really difficult. I always say it's so difficult. I mean, it's, it's sort of a fool's errand to come up with trends, even though I do it the whole time. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because, you know, it's sort of my job to think of them, but it's also my job to ignore them and to just buy books that are really mm-hmm. good, no matter what's happening in the world. Um, but I do think this thing that Matthew was talking about, about the about kind of memoir, but about something else, um, will continue to um, will continue to do really well. Um, just because it's very it's a very interesting way of learning about things, mm. um, and you it's often very honest, and someone learns something and becomes better at living life. I mean, what's not to like? <laughs> And then, um, you know, uh, yeah, I think I think that will continue as well as um, I do think the self-help trend will also continue. Well, let's have you back next year to see how your predictions have played out. Thank you, both Alexis Kirschbaum and Matthew Hennessy. Now, Toby Mundy, our blessed director of the Bailey Gifford Prize, interrogating Reeves Wiedemann, author and features writer at New York magazine, about the recent and strange case of the book thief. Let's find out more. Book publishing, of course, is a world in which writers on the page pretend to be other people. But when impersonating other people takes place in the real world, rather than between the covers of book, there's a good chance that laws are being broken. In 2020, the Bailey Gifford Prize had a brush with an online fraudster pretending to be our winner, Craig Brown, and trying to get us to send them £50,000 of Craig's prize money. Something we were actually able to avoid, but other prizes did not. A different and so far entirely unrelated story of impersonation has recently come to light with the arrest a few days ago of 29-year-old Filippo Bernardini by the FBI in New York, accused of wire fraud and aggravated identity theft for, allegedly, stealing many dozens of unpublished manuscripts. I'm delighted to welcome uh, Reeves Weidemann, a features writer at New York magazine and author of the acclaimed book Billion Dollar Loser, who has for some months has been tracking the book thief and who recently wrote an excellent piece about this whole strange episode for vulture.com which i highly recommend reeves thanks so much for making the time to join us thanks for having me toby for people who aren't aware of this episode which has i should say have gripped the publishing industry mm-hmm. can you talk us through the story itself and what led to filippo bernardini's arrest Sure. So as far as we know, this this began around 2016. And, and what was happening is that, that people in the book publishing industry, editors, agents, scouts all over the world were, were getting emails that, that seemed to be from their colleagues at, at other publishing companies. Um, and in most cases, they were... The, these, these emails were asking for unpublished manuscripts. They were books that had been announced, but 
but weren't out yet. And um, in some cases, uh, people people responded, you know, sending these manuscripts as as they often do in 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 the publishing business when you're you're sharing sharing books, hoping people um, in other countries might might buy them or or for whatever reason. Um, but very quickly, what 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 happened is that is that people began to realize some of these requests were were kind of unusual and. Um, people realized that that the email addresses um, weren't weren't exactly uh, weren't correct. They were they were either changed by a letter here or there. One of the most sort of famous examples is is rather than at Penguin Random House, it was at Penguin Randorn House with an R and an N made, which kind of looks like an M if you if you don't look too closely um, on the page. And so people were sending out these unpublished book manuscripts to someone. We for for years it was sort of baffling the industry uh, about who might be doing this. The manuscripts were not appearing online. It didn't appear that they were being pirated. It wasn't exactly clear what what sort of financial or practical motivation um, there would be. Um, and and all of this kind of led to there were all kinds of sort of amateur sleuths. Who were trying to get to the bottom of this this mystery? Of course, uh, myself and and some other journalists did the same, and and eventually um, this came to the attention of of the FBI and and uh, in in 2020, and so they appear to have spent you know more than a year um, investigating this case and and have eventually uh, settled on a, a, accusing this man Filippo Bernardini who. Is a is a young man. Um, he's, he's 29 years old and and seems to have spent most of his 20s just trying to get a foothold um, in in the industry. Um, so the the big question for everyone still is if if it's him, um, why was he doing this? Uh, and and that still remains kind of a puzzle. Absolutely. So we should say, of course, that uh, Bernardini remains um, has been accused of this. The, these mm-hmm. crimes, but um, has not been convicted of them. The thief first popped up in 2017, I think you said, didn't you? Uh, at the end of 2016, but yes, it sort of started to pick up from there. Uh, so, is there anything we can infer about the the thief's taste then from um, from from his choice of books? Not much, by the sounds of things. Well, by and large, I'd say they have good taste. Um, these are not the the kind of um, most most commercial sort of bottom of the barrel um, books. Of course, we love we love every book equally, but mm-hmm. um, by and large, they were looking at you know in general sort of literary books. Um, you know, these were not the kind of James Patterson, John Grisham, Stephen King's the you know the the people who are writing books every year these these were more kind of in in the literary world oftentimes books that you know would be published in in many countries in in many different languages but yeah sometimes bestsellers sometimes very much not and quite a lot of evidence from the from from the outset that the uh, perpetrator knew a lot about the in, inner workings of the industry i think yeah, when you when you look at the scheme, it's it's not you know it is it sort of gets put in the bucket of hacking, but it's not so technologically sophisticated. Uh, you or I could could sit down and and kind of figure out how to register a domain name and and do it relatively anonymously, and, and so the technological part of this wasn't so sophisticated. But but very early on, this person it just in in the way that they communicated in in the way they picked their targets and kind of knew 
to get a particular book, I need to go to this particular person at this particular publishing company, seemed to suggest someone who had deep knowledge of, of the industry, knowledge that you'd have no other reason uh, to have. And, and in particular, especially early on, it seemed to be someone who, who worked in, in the business of foreign rights and selling books to different countries. And, and again, Mr. Mr. Bernardini is, is innocent until proven guilty, but, but in his biography, that is largely where he, um, he has worked throughout his, his career. Hmm. And um, did, I mean, it must have been, how, how many, is there any sense of how many manuscripts um, and he, he procured through this, this deception? It's it's impossible to say. I mean, you know, I I, I can say um, with full confidence dozens, and and I would suspect that the number is is in the hundreds. I mean, I I have sort of a, a database as I became kind of obsessed with this of of all the emails this this person had sent and the books they had gone after, and it's it's hundreds of emails, and and that's a, a fraction of the. Um, of the of, of of I'm sure the full output. What what is interesting is is more often than not they were unsuccessful. You know, for one reason or another, mm-hmm. the, the person kind of sniffed it out or or didn't send the manuscript along. And and obviously over the years, people became you know more and more aware that this was going on. So it was really a huge amount of effort, um, a, a pretty low success rate. But yet at the end of the day, successful enough that that I I think we can pretty confidently say that that you know, a hundred maybe maybe hundreds of of manuscripts over the years um, came into this person's possession. So it must have been the most tremendous amount of work. I mean, yeah. kind of if you have a day job, this is this is some crazy hobby. I think it's kind of baffling, and and it it almost did feel like a second job to to this person just looking at at the the amount of effort they put in. You know, sending emails. In the middle of the workday, sending emails um, at, at in the middle of the night. You know, of course, we we didn't and, and still don't fully know where this person was located in the world. But there was no way to sort of figure out a pattern because the emails were sent constantly. They were sent on the weekends. They were sent, you know, during business hours. It it, it truly was a kind of huge amount of work. And I think, you know, that that led people to try to think there must be some kind of financial benefit. Um, and and at the same times, it 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 makes it all the more baffling if it if it ends up just kind of having been a game of some kind. Huh. And what what about this story captured your imagination? I can see why the publishing community were were gripped by it because you know it, it's a mystery with a healthy dose of dose of paranoia yeah. in the, at the heart of it. Yeah. Um, but but how did what was it that seized your imagination? Because you presumably have a sense now of how much time it must have taken the perpetrator because you yourself had to put an awful lot of time into this. I wasted a lot of my my 2020 um, and, and into <laughs> 2021 on on this on this case. Um, I uh, I think a couple of things. One, I of course love an unsolved mystery. It's it's kind of my favorite kind of story to to report and and dig into. Um, one appealing part of this this mystery, of course, is we sort of live in an era of kind of true crime podcasts that dive into unsolved mysteries of all kinds. Is is it's a relatively victimless crime. Mm. It, it's it's of course you know this has this has been um, a, a real pain for a lot of people in the in the publishing world. Um, it for for authors who have had their books stolen. Um, it's of course been kind of this 
violating feeling for people who've been impersonated. It's, it's especially for people who work with words to see someone impersonating their writing has been, has been, you know, difficult for, for some people. But at the end of the day, we, you know, no books have been, uh, no sales have been interrupted. It hasn't, it isn't like these books are being released. So, um, so I think, you know, that made it kind of a, an, an appealing mystery. And, and on top of that, when I took on this case, it was the middle of the pandemic and, and we were all living our lives on email. And so to me, you know, part of the story was, was just, you know, about, about our, our daily lives stuck to our inboxes and, and kind of how, you know, how, how kind of blindly we, we just kind of go about our days and, and how easily it is for, for someone to want to disrupt it if they have whatever reason to do so. And were publishers happy to talk to you? Did it, was it hard to get folks to open up about this? It was interesting. I would say uh, there was a mix. There were people who were very protective of their authors. They and and I think in some ways they they wanted to kind of maintain a fiction of like you know we have this this sort of black box. When you send us our manuscript, it's the most precious thing in the world, and we're going to protect it with our lives. And in some ways, this was an acknowledgement that you know, in, unless you're super, super careful, you, you can't guarantee that. But at the same time, I think, I think many people saw this for what it was, which was, was, you know, a, a relatively low stakes crime. And, and for people who are in the business of, of selling mystery novels and spy thrillers, I think there was a, a real um, sense of enjoyment in, in kind of imagining themselves living in, in the middle of, of one and, and trying to solve it. Well, I got to. I mean, I do wonder. I don't know if you've got any thoughts about this, but it is a relatively low stakes crime, deeply unenjoyable for the victims. But, but, yeah. but how did the FBI of all? I mean, surely they've got other things to yeah. do. It's amazing. <laughs> yeah. It's amazing to me that the FBI will be waiting for uh, this young man when he lands in New York. I just think that's extraordinary. We've been dealing with insurrections and many other things in the United States, and and so you would you would think so. I mean, um, this came to the FBI's attention because it was brought to its attention by by people in the publishing industry in, in the United States, um, beginning in in 2020. Um, you know, it is a crime, and and the FBI especially has is is trying to take um, more and more seriously, you know, online crimes, which are are of course a, a growing um, a growing industry, and unfortunately, so. Um, you know, I, I think it was always hard for people in publishing. We, we wondered a lot, you know, how seriously is is the FBI really taking this case? And I, I think, you know, at the end of the day, clearly, clearly it was very serious. I don't think this was at the at the top of the list of, of priorities, but but it's clearly we, we do know that they knew all the way back um, in July of, of last year that, that they had already identified him. And so. At that point, it was kind of a waiting game, again, presumably for for him to to arrive in the United States. And so, you know, clearly they took it seriously enough. And now we'll have to see. Um, we'll see what happens uh, from here. Hmm. And my, I suppose my last question, which is the one that is both impossible to answer and the most fascinating, is what were the motivations of the thief? If yeah. it's what what do you, what psychological profile do you do you see when you look at the material? Yeah, this, this has always been the most baffling part of it. And I think, unfortunately, it still remains the biggest question. Um, people had proposed a, a variety of theories. Um, there was a suggestion that perhaps this person was a literary scout. Um, mm-hmm. a, a scout's work in this kind of 
corner of the industry that where having access early access to manuscripts is useful. Uh, some people have suggested that that Hollywood was involved, um, obviously with the, the sort of race to to snap up um, IP um, as Hollywood refers to books. Um, and in the pursuit of, of making films and TV shows was was one possible motive. But in both of those cases, again, it felt it just felt like a lot of work for for not that much gain. You know, <laughs> scouts can get these books by just doing their jobs uh, in an above board way. And, and so the advantage didn't didn't really seem to be there. So in a lot of ways, I, I think we're, we're left with with what what I've always thought had to be some part of of this, which is that it, it was some kind of game um, that that it, it felt like it was um, it, you know, either w w whether it was sort of enacting revenge on on the industry, uh, whether it was just something, someone who was bored and and wanted to sort of pretend that they were a person who was operating in in the heart of the industry, uh, in, impersonating these people who had jobs they might want to have, um, or in the realm of of more or less total speculation. But I think um, at this point, you know. It would be surprising to know that there was a, a fully practical and or financial motivation to something that required uh, so much work over the course of more than more than five years. Wow. Well, we may never we may never know. It may have just been a very eccentric yeah. and stressful hobby, I guess. Right. <laughs> yeah. That seems as as likely as anything at this point. But uh, thank you so much. That was really fascinating. Thanks so much, uh, Reeves, for, for joining us. And uh, to remind you, uh, Reeves' book, which is not about this, but is excellent in any case, is called Billion Dollar Loser. It's available from all good bookshops. And back to Shahida. Wow, what a story. Hopefully, Toby will be keeping us posted. Thanks to him, Reeves Wiedemann, and to our guests, Alexis Kirschbaum and Matthew Hennessy, and to you for joining us. Thank you, as ever, to the Blavatnik Family Foundation for its invaluable support for this podcast. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram, look for at BG Prize and you'll find all the latest on future episodes and news about this year's prize. And do get in touch to let us know what you think of today's podcast. We'd love to hear from you. You can also sign up for our newsletter through our website where you'll receive updates straight to your inbox. That's it from us. Goodbye for now. See you next time. Read Smart, the Bailey Gifford Prize for Nonfiction podcast. This podcast is generously supported by the Blavatnik Family Foundation.